If you don't know me, my name is Rob, and I'm the senior pastor here, and I get the privilege of opening up the Bible with you and sharing from the scriptures. Uh, before we get there, though, I do want to remind you that uh, everybody has a job to do. Who remembers? Invite one. You guys are great memories. Each one, reach one. You guys nailed it. Good job. Each one, reach one. So it's our job this Christmas season to be invitational to our friends, loved ones, neighbors. Uh, I've said it like this before. We want to put our friend's hand in the hand of Jesus. Remember, there are three service, four, uh, 5.30, and 7 o'clock. So be sure to be at one of those. Though I do want to encourage you that godly people go to the 7 o'clock service. Uh, it is the best service that we put on every single year. There's always a chance that by that time I'll be so loosened up that I'll say something entirely awkward, and you wouldn't want to miss that on Christmas Eve. So uh, yes, put that on your calendar, 7 o'clock. Now I hear like, reports that people are doing Christmas Eve dinners. Whatever happened to Christmas dinner? I'm just curious. I don't know. Anyway, let's get into God's Word. Uh, this morning, we will be looking at another eternal gift. I remember the Christmas of 1990. It was a Christmas that stood out strong in my mind. Now, I'll be aging myself a little bit here as I tell you this, but this was when I was in first grade. Now, if you were alive at this time, you remember that there was something dominating the minds and thoughts and prayers of the American people. It was the buildup that would ultimately lead into the Desert Storm operation. I was first at this time becoming aware of the grim realities of war. One of our teachers, it was my first grade teacher, Mrs. Rome, she asked us the question that maybe you were asked when you were a little kid. If there's one thing that you could have this year for Christmas, what would it be? And uh, all the kids were given pieces of paper, and so we drew. My tongue was hanging out as I was drawing my excellent picture. And as she went around the classroom... Uh, we stood up and we held up our pictures. Now, a couple of us were a little less altruistic at the age of six years old. And so I held up this picture of this amazing robot that I had been dreaming about and wanting for all Christmas season. If there was anything that Jesus could give me for Christmas, it would be a robot. Well, other people in the room, though, they were a little deeper than I was. I remember this one girl who held up a picture of people holding hands around the globe. And uh, written at the top of her paper was the word peace. Peace. Now, I thought that she had wasted a good ask, of course, <laughs> when you could have had a robot. But... Think about it. If there is a word that comes to mind for the Christmas season, it is certainly the word peace. Maybe you've heard that old Christmas song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and, and the longing that this song anticipates, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
I thought as now this day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had run so long the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But there's a problem with peace. Simply stated, we want it, but we don't find it. If there's a common denominator when it comes to peace, it's that all cultures throughout uh, history are decisively not experiencing peace, but the grim reality of war. If you look at the last 3,400 years of human history, uh, there have only been about 268 years of that time period where there was what would be called peace. And I would imagine even in those years, there was some type of minor skirmish taking place. So out of all of recorded human history, 8% of that would have something resembling peace. It's estimated that in the 20th and 21st century, about 108 million people have been killed in wars. And if you record all of history, estimates range between 150 million people to 1 billion people. And that's a staggering number. But even there... What can be said of societies and nations can also be said of individuals and relationships. You know, peace is, is such a hard word to define for you because we tend to think of peace by something that is absent. We think of peace by the absence of war. Uh, we think of peace by the absence of conflict within our families or even individuals. We think of peace in terms of the absence of fear, the absence of anxiety, the absence of grief, the absence of depression. So the idea is that there is a, a universal quest for peace and a universal failure to find it. Let me ask you the question. Do you experience peace? Is it hard to find in your relationships? Is it hard to find within yourself? And what do we do when we don't find peace? Well, I think we create peace substitutes. Peace substitutes. One of the peace substitutes you hear about often today is the idea of tolerance. Uh, in war, tolerance is a ceasefire. A ceasefire is not the idea that nations have come together and have learned to live together in harmony. No, it just means that the killing has stopped, that we've stopped firing bullets at one another. In fact, I've heard peace described like this. It is that glorious moment when everyone stands around reloading. In our personal relationships, tolerance means that we've decided to give one another space. We'll just manage the tension. You, you remember what Mama used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, another peace substitute is control. One of the reasons I think we lack peace is because we want control in our world. And uh, think of all the problems that manifest due to a lack of control. You think of the problem of anger. People explode because they can't uh, control people or circumstances and situations in their life. People struggle with fear because they're afraid that something else is going to control them. Or even obsessive people are consumed with trying to manage or clean things that just won't stay managed or clean. I mean, I look at my own house and uh, there are three little Tasmanian devils running around all the time. Nothing stays clean. And Katie claims that there's a bigger Tasmanian devil living there. 
which I have no idea what she's talking about. So how, or have you ever noticed that the advice for peace and how to find peace is confusing? Imagine we were in a room with some of the major religious figures and philosophers and influencers around the world, and as we're sitting in this room, I just decide that I'm going to lob up a thought bomb. How do I find peace? Well, Ralph Waldo Emerson, sitting off in the corner, pontificating, says, nothing can bring peace but yourself. Well, Buddha objects. No, there is no blissful peace until one passes beyond the agony of life and death. Mother Teresa is smiling and she says, peace begins with a smile. The Dalai Lama, if you wish to experience peace, provide peace for another. So now I come in and I say, I'm confused here. Which comes first, peace, peace within or peace outside of ourselves, bringing peace to others? Essentially, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, Buddha comes back and he says, well, peace comes from within. Do not seek it from without. And I say, Buddha, but didn't you just say I had to wait till death? And then Eleanor Roosevelt says impatiently, it isn't enough to talk about peace. One must believe in it. One must work towards it. Now, Gandhi has been passively resisting the conversation, but he comes in and seems a little irritated. He says, for peace to be real, it must be unaffected by circumstances. Huh? Now we're really confused. And in order to clear up the confusion, John Lennon brings it all home. All we're saying is give peace a chance. And so everyone holds hands and we start singing, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Clear as mud? Got it? Peace is elusive. Peace is hard to even define on how we find it. So the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, is there true peace? Is true peace possible? Now, in order to find the answer to that question, we start with the Christmas story. You remember in Luke's gospel that Jesus is born and out in the field there are shepherds who are tending to their sheep. And in this uh, nighttime atmosphere, the shepherds are met by an angelic being who comes and tells them that a child is born in the city of David and that this child is the long-anticipated one. And as they're telling this story, then the night sky erupts. It's illuminated by a multitude of heavenly hosts who sing a song to them, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Now the angels sing of peace. It's a robust theological word that they use in this context. It's the ancient Hebrew word shalom that perfectly communicates the idea of peace that we're talking about. One of the uh, books, uh, dictionaries of Hebrew language, theological words of the Old Testament, describes shalom as entering into a state of wholeness and unity and restored relationship. Scholar Cornelius Platinga Jr. says this, shalom in other words, is the way things ought to be. 
The way things ought to be now, doesn't that sound nice? I mean, how many times have we been either sitting in a room and watching two people squabbling or or we've seen someone leaving a wake of destruction in their path or, you know, even in the current political moment and we're just sitting there saying to ourselves, it ought not to be like this. Then we have to ask the question, well then, who has the right to decide? Who has the power to enforce how things ought to be. Do I get to decide? Well, I might think that I have the right, but let me tell you, I don't have the power to enforce it. I try, and it doesn't work. What about we? Do we have the power to decide how things ought to be? I mean, can we go to the House of Representatives and the Senate and say, you know what? We want you to vote on world peace tomorrow. Make it happen. Or or could we create a law that says, you know, I don't want people anymore making unkind gestures at one another on the road. How does that go over? And uh, what if my way things ought to be infringes upon your way things ought to be? Can shalom be found? Who gets to have shalom? Who doesn't get to have it? What I'm suggesting to you is this. If real peace is possible, it can't be something that we create. So who gets to decide? And what I'm telling you from the Bible is God does. Andy Farmer wrote wrote a great book called Real Peace, and he said this in the book, the idea of shalom is uniquely God-centered. Shalom is not something that can exist on its own in this world. It is a gift from God and human experience. Even more, it is the effect on human experience when life is lived the way God designed life to be lived. And so you have to understand the big picture view of the story in order to appreciate what peace is. The Bible begins with the creation narrative. And uh, in this narrative, we see God weaving peace into the very fabric of our essence. Genesis 1 and 2 begins with this God creating a universe and then pulling out of the chaos this order and harmony, all to be uh, ruled under His good rule. Uh, The apex of His created order, the magnum opus of His creation event is humankind. Genesis 1.27 tells us that the God of peace created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. I like how Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, describes this creation event. He says, God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another. This interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. So what happened? Well, the next part of the story tells us that our sin disrupted our peace with God. John Milton in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, describes how cataclysmic the fall is. Now, I think that that poem could probably better be titled, Peace Lost. You see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and chose to be many creators, they disrupted shalom. You have to think about it. If order, if harmony, if fullness are all created by God and and He weaves this into the very fabric of the universe, what happens when you cut the cord from the Creator? 
Tim Keller, again, says, when we lost our relationship with God, the world stopped working right. Because our relationship with God has broken down, shalom is gone spiritually, psychologically, socially, physically. And two of the ramifications of this breakdown of shalom, uh, two theological words, one is enmity, the other is alienation. Enmity, if you define this word, is essentially the idea that when humankind sinned against God, the battle lines were drawn between God and humans. Might be uncomfortable to consider this, but as a species, I think we live with this sense that there is someone bigger than us, someone larger than us, and we're not in a great relationship with this someone. Now, alienation is the felt experience of enmity. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes a sermon and he uses this Hebrew word, hevel. He starts the sermon and essentially says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that captures the idea of alienation. Alienation is this idea that, that throbbing awareness, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, you could be uh, in a room full of people and, and still feel like you're all to yourself. You're all alone. It can be that lack of purpose that you feel, even though you look out in the world and you see all kinds of different opportunities, and yet for some reason you sense that there's no purpose for you. It's that sense of strangeness that you feel towards the stranger, the person that you don't know. It's also that loss of self, that decenteredness of self, that confusion of self. So as we continue with the biblical story, though, we see that God is not content for this to be the rest of the story. From, from the fall to the New Testament, the next steps of the story is about God creating a one-sided peace treaty with his creation that has rejected him. He calls Abraham, he extends a covenant to him, he promises that through Abraham all the nations will be blessed through him. The nation of Israel comes into being, God's chosen people who are meant to be his shalom representatives to the earth. Now as you look at the story of the Old Testament, Israel doesn't do a very good job, do they? They fail miserably, in fact. And through the prophets, such as Hosea, God laments Israel's stubbornness and infidelity. Hosea 11, verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. But again, God is not content for this to be the rest of the story. And so in the Old Testament, through the prophets, he proclaims that one will come. A Savior. A Messiah. Through the prophet Isaiah, this is a classic Christmas text. Think of these words. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then the words we're familiar with. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. You see, the fourth part of this story is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the peacemaker who came to broker peace between God and humankind. He is the peace child who God gave as uh, an offering uh, to satisfy sin, who died on the cross for our sins. In fact, Paul explains this as he unpacks the gospel of peace in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13, it says, You who were once far from God but now have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. Christ reconciled both groups, and here Paul is referring to the people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, He reconciles both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and hostility towards each other was put to death. That's why it's called the gospel of peace. God's reconciling two groups. Do you understand that our biggest problem is not a lack of peace within ourselves? Our biggest problem is not a lack of peace within our relationships. Our biggest problem is not a lack of peace in the world. Our biggest problem is a lack of peace between us and God. And the Gospel says that Jesus came in order for that to be restored. You go back to the shepherd's song, and the angel's singing again, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Notice the last part. Peace comes to those with whom God is well pleased. So how do I find myself in the sphere of God's pleasure? It's by becoming a Christian. It's by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by believing that He died in my place for my sins. Let's continue on. One of the things I hope you're seeing in this series, and last week we talked about the idea of happiness, this week we're talking about peace, is that yes, these are eternal gifts. Happiness is an eternal gift. Peace is an eternal gift. But they're also gifts that are meant to be experienced now in your life. When Jesus came and died on the cross, when you put your faith in him, if you became a Christian, you're meant to experience peace within yourself, peace within your relationships, and you're called to be a peacemaker to the world. But how does that work, we ask ourselves? Because I know plenty of Christians who are decidedly not at peace have stress, anxiety, fear, guilt, and maybe even some of the more negative emotions in their world like anger, bitterness, and resentment. So how does this all work? Well, first we have to understand that God gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, instantaneously, in that moment of faith, you are given the Holy Spirit of God. In Galatians 5.22, Paul says that one of the fruits of that Spirit dwelling in you is peace. This means 
that one of the Spirit's jobs is to provide your heart with the tangible experience of peace. So why do we struggle with negative emotions? Why do we kind of get outside of that gift? And uh, the Bible tells us, while there are other factors involved, this is the dominant factor. We're not walking with the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the, fl- the flesh. When you get outside of the Spirit, when you get out of uh, step with the Spirit, then you find yourself in trouble. You find yourself with a lack of peace. Said differently, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What I'm trying to tell you is to give God control. Stop running the ship yourself. Stop trying to play mini-God in your life as you're controlling your world. Said differently, let God be God. Well, how do I do that, you say? Well, that's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked it this morning. I like this idea that Chuck Swindoll gives us. Uh, When you think about something in your world that robs you of peace, who here doesn't deal with anxiety? Anxiety. Now, he defines anxiety this way. It is taking responsibility for needless things or things outside of your control. I mean, think about all the things that are not within your control. Can you tell the weather to get sunny and 70 today? I can't. What about traffic? What about flu season? What about sibling rivalries, lost wallets, canceled flights, or bosses who you're about to head out the door for the holiday who says, I need just one more thing? I mean, when you think about life, life almost decidedly works against tranquility in our life, doesn't it? Well, Paul says in the book of Philippians, don't take responsibility for those things. You can't control those things no matter how hard you try. Listen to what he says to a church. He gives them a a gospel remedy for a church who is struggling with anxiety. He says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, friends, the Spirit guards you, heart, mind, with truth that is bigger than your circumstances. Guard is probably better translated with the word garrison. The idea in military terms is of troops that are strategically placed inside of a town or a city, and they do the work of protecting the city from invaders without and keeping the peace within the city. So think about life and all the things that come at us from the outside. Uh, Some of them are just more of the ordinary things. You're driving down the road. The person is driving insanely slow. You have a silly argument with your wife. You're watching a movie. You say something stupid. She takes it the wrong way, and then you just start going after it. You wake up in the morning on the wrong side of the bed. Or some of the bigger circumstances like undergoing a move or having a, a new baby in your life. And then more of the tragedies of life like death and divorce. 
terminal illness. What happens inside of us when we're bombarded with these invaders? Well, there's turmoil. We begin to struggle with faith. We begin to fear, doubt. We might grow bitter. You see, it's the Holy Spirit's job to guard your heart with truth that's bigger than those circumstances, to reinforce that truth in your heart, to strengthen your resolve to follow that truth. But here's the thing, you have to let the Spirit work, and you have to work with Him. I think some people believe, oh, you know, I became a Christian, and the Bible says that when I become a Christian, there's going to be peace, and let the peace just start flowing. But it doesn't. Because the Spirit works with truth that's bigger than your circumstances, so you have to give them some materials to work with. In Philippians, Paul says it like this, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now here's the thing. I hope you see how practical this is. It's so practical. It, it gets down into the nitty-gritty of life, like asking questions like, what kind of media are you consuming right now? And you're watching the bad news that just kind of cycles all of these messages that are meant to just keep us gripped to the television, telling us that the world's falling apart, that the world's about to end, and that the other party's the enemy. Or, or maybe you're struggling in relationships because you watch this reality TV show that advances the plot line with people who are being awful to one another. And we're like, oh, what's going to happen next? Tell me more. Paul's saying, get off of that. Get off that garbage. Have better conversations. Don't let your conversations about people that you know be dripping with venom about them while they're not there. Think better thoughts. When, when dark thoughts enter in your mind, don't dwell on those dark thoughts. In fact, Go to the Word of God because that's where you get the truth that's bigger than your circumstances. Listen how he defines the better stuff again. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. Even the psychologists today are saying that this is wise to do. I, I cited a book last week by David Murray, The Happy Christian, he shares a, a, a study where a team of psychologists analyzed business meetings. Like, can you think of anything else in the world that you would rather not be at than a business meeting? Well, they did a study and reviewed each sentence, oh my goodness, of, of a, a business meeting, positive and negative words. It was like 6,000 different companies. And you know what they found in terms of results? That there is a sharp dividing line Companies with better than a three-to-one ratio for positive statements to negative statements flourish. When you get that ratio inverted, those companies fail. You have to be careful, they say, because above 13-to-one positive to negative, 
the company starts getting off course. They say, like, without a, a negative rudder, the positive sh uh, sales flap aimlessly and you lose credibility. What they're talking about there is flattery. They're saying that's not a great idea, and I agree with that. But the idea is, right, when you focus on the positive, surely good things happen. So peace is meant for your life now. And here's one more point that we need to see. It's also a gift that we're called to spread to others. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. It turns out that God didn't just give you the Holy Spirit so that you can soak in all the peace to yourself and enjoy it for you. You're meant to be a disciple maker, a peace spreader. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says it's like this. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a peace word. We're to be peace brokers. It's our job to put our hand, friend's hand in the hand of Jesus. But here's the thing, church. Just like with happiness... They need to see you at peace. Hey guys, I know my life's like a complete wreck, but come to Jesus. He, he has all the answers to your questions. <laughs> no. They need to see you living the peace of God within yourself, within your relationships, and being a peacemaker to the world. I opened the sermon quoting the classic song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, if you know the song, you know that the song reflects some dissonance in it between a longing for world peace and the experience that we have now. Listen to the next stanza. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now these lines were penned by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, literary critic and poet. And it's a reflection of his experience over the previous two years of his life. Two years prior, before writing this poem, his wife, Fanny, was in a major accident. Her dress caught on fire. Uh, Henry Longfellow is napping and, and he awakes to the shrieks and the screams of his wife who is consumed with flames. And so in an attempt to rescue her, he, he brings out a rug and he tries to pat her down with the rug and then eventually throws his own body on his wife. Tragically, the burns are so severe that she dies the next morning, July 10th, 1861. And in the process of attempting to save her, he burns his face and he's not even able to attend her funeral because of the wounds. Now he would grow a beard for the rest of his life to hide the burns. He was even afraid that he would be sent to asylum because his grief was so intense. In March of 1863, his 18-year-old son, Charles decides that he is going to leave their home from Cambridge, Mass., and enter into this clandestine voyage, unbeknownst to his father, boarding a train, going down to Washington, D.C., and enlisting in the Union Army to enter into the Civil War. If you know this war, you understand that this is the bloodiest conflict in American history. 600 
20,000 American soldiers lost their life. Of all the other conflicts, if you, if you add up the casualties, the other ones have 644,000. The Civil War, 620,000. On November 27, 1863, Charles is shot through his left shoulder. The bullet exited under this shoulder blade and skimmed his spine. He avoided paralysis by an inch. Henry Longfellow was informed of his son on December 1st, and because of travel during this time, he makes his way to his son, and they meet together on December 5th. As he's nursing his son to health, on Christmas Day, at the age of 57 years old, a widow, a father of six, the oldest son nearly paralyzed and living in a war-torn country, he writes this poem. You see, he heard the bells on Christmas Day and people singing of peace on earth, goodwill towards men, but he observed a world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the very words of that song. Longfellow's tension is the same tension you feel and I feel. We speak of peace, but I don't know about you, when I look out at the world, I see a whole lot of ugly. Lots of ugly. And the dissonance, it feels unresolvable. And I got to tell you something about it. It is unresolvable. It's completely unresolvable if there is no such thing as eternity. You see, eternity is what changes this dynamic for us. We understand that Jesus came into the world to be the Prince of Peace, but we also know that he died a bloody death on the cross. And so he's not going to bring the the totality of peace that he came to bring in that first advent. Yes, I said you can experience peace now. That is so true. You can have peace in your Christian life. But we don't look to the first advent for the totality of peace. We are looking for a second coming, a second advent of Jesus when he will return and set everything right and bring worldwide shalom. Isaiah 2.4 prophesies this vision, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Friends, that's the eternal gift of peace. Eternity is where Jesus rules, where he establishes shalom, where he sets things right, where he becomes to us all the Prince of Peace. And it was in that that Longfellow found hope in his pain as he heard the bells chiming and he dreamed about eternity. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men.
One of my favorite memories from childhood Christmas was the fact that mom and dad let us open a couple of presents early on Christmas Eve. Anybody else do that tradition, a couple of presents early on Christmas Eve? Good for you guys. It is good to open up some of your presents a little bit early. Well, we've been talking about eternal gifts, and what I'm trying to convey in this message is, yes, these are gifts that we will delight in in eternity. But many of these gifts are meant to be opened early. Now, when I look at this picture that I'm holding in my hand, it's a picture of Big Red, our secretariat, winning the Belmont run, the historical run of the Triple Crown race. He's running along, and you notice in the picture that as he's hugging that rail, he, he's almost uh, just left the other horses in the dust. You can hardly even see them. He had won by over 31 uh, lengths, which is about 80 yards. The jockey, Ron Turcott, who was riding Secretariat, said, I was just along for the ride. Now think about it. No competition. No jockey urging him. Secretariat is running faster than any other horse has ran in history. In fact, as they were clocking his times, they noted that he was speeding up even as he went to the finish line. So while all these uh, crowds are around him while he's at full speed with no competition, you, you notice an animal is not living with stress, He's that calm, he's not afraid to fail, he's just running for the fun of it. Secretariat is doing what he was created to do. He's doing it beautifully and he's doing it with a lot of joy. Friends, that's what biblical peace is. And we all need some of that. You, you can do what you were always created to do. You can live a beautiful life, and you can live a life that's full of joy. But the way to do that is to get in right relationship with the creator of the universe, who weaved peace into the very fabric of the world. Friends, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is open up the gift early. Experience peace with God. And the way that you experience peace with God is by trusting Jesus as your Savior. Would you all stand together with me as we close?